God with us. You all know the name Emmanuel, right? You've heard it before. It means God with us. Um, so in light of the, uh, considering the fact that the time of year we're in is Christmas, this is something that I shared with you this same time last year, um, but there's a big argument in the Chipkowski household, and it has to do with Christmas presents. And if you remember last year, the argument that I told you that my wife Evie and I have is, when do you open your Christmas presents? Is it Christmas Eve or is it Christmas Day? Well, one year later, I'm here to tell you that that argument still stands and we're still having it. And we're both still in the same camp. Evie wants presents open Christmas Day, traditionally. But me, even though she's Puerto Rican, I have the Spanish influence coming out in me where the amount of abuelas houses that I went to on Christmas Eve opened the gifts Christmas Eve. And I want to open my gifts on Christmas Eve. Especially since on Sunday, Christmas Day, we're going to be with family, and whatever gifts she got me as a, as a kid coming out, I want to use them, but I'm not going to bring them with me to my parents' house. So I'm making the logical argument, you need to let me open my gifts on Christmas Eve so I can play with them. I can enjoy them, because guess what? Monday comes, I'm back to work. I want to get my fill of my gifts. Does anybody know what I'm saying or no? You don't know. You're not children. You're not immature. <laughs> Only I am, right? Get out of here. So the argument is still present in this household, and my wife's line of reasoning is, you'll ruin Christmas. And I love to pull the God card on her, and I love to say, that's not what Christmas is about. You're a pastor's wife. You ought to know better. Come on now. Let the Lord ring true in this house. Let's get the vanity out of the way, and we ought to open our gifts on Christmas Eve. Because Christmas Day is all about Jesus, right? Wow, what a way to manipulate God in that sense. Um, but that, that's, that's, that's the fun of it, right? And, and I pick on it, but really, what, what is Christmas all about? And we all know the answer. If you're here and you're a believer, you know it's about Jesus. But it's really easier said than done to live that out. Because, come on, this is the time of year where vanity really wells up, more so than, than other times of the year, when it's about buying gifts and maybe, for some of you, working overtime, getting year-end responsibilities in place, uh, family events, kids' activities. They just Everything seems to be heightened materialism, even communal activities, as I've said, can be heightened to the degree that now God kind of gets the backseat of our lives. What is Christmas all about, if not about Jesus? And we know that, but it's not always easy to live that. So this week and next Sunday leading up to Christmas Eve, I have two sermons that... Um, I hope will help us stay grounded in the reason for the season being all about Jesus. And this week, we need to re be reminded that Christmas is about the fact that Jesus, God, Emmanuel, is with us. He's here. He's present. We went through the books of First and Second Thessalonians for a couple of months, and a, a, a big point of discussion was about Jesus' second coming. For those of you that were here, you remember that. Well, this season is about Jesus' first coming, his incarnation, his coming in the flesh. So let's, let's kind of talk about that. Um, I know I always say this. We'll see how it goes, but I, I'm, I'm, I don't have too much expounding for you today. I have a, a little bit here and there. But really, I'm just going to read some scriptures with you and make some points. And, yeah, we'll see how long that takes. So do any of you like to read genealogies? You know, those list of names that are in the Old Testament and the New Testament? 
blank, the son of 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 blank. Like you're like, why is this in the Bible? What spiritual nourishment does this give me? But I guess I need to read it because if I'm a good Christian and I want to read the Bible from start to finish, I got to get through the genealogies. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you haven't. I have. Um, Just a personal thing. Uh, So let me give you a little bit of fun for a genealogy that we see in both Matthew and Luke regarding Jesus and his lineage. Because if you go to those Gospels and you read the the story of Jesus's incarnation in the beginning— of his incarnation, those genealogies are included, but they're unique, they're nuanced, they're different. So, um, before we jump into that, in the Old Testament, there are some indicators of the Messiah to come. This is before Jesus. The prophetic words from Genesis through the prophets all the way up until the time of Jesus's First coming, Emmanuel with us. And some of these qualifiers, these indicators of what the Jewish people needed to be looking for in order to know whether or not this was the Messiah, uh, some of them, in regards to the lineage, were as follows. Needed to be born of a woman. Kind of goes without saying, right? But born of a woman, Isaiah talks about it, uh, defines the woman as a virgin. Um, Must be, the Messiah must be of the seed of Abraham. Father Abraham, the patriarch of the Jewish people. He must be a part of the tribe of Judah. And you all know there are, there are you know, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, had uh, a number of sons which comprised the 12 tribes of the people of Israel. The Messiah wasn't going to come from a random one. He had to come from the line of Judah. So you got Abraham going down the lineage, and it's branching out into all these different family households. Now from Abraham down here, you got to have Judah. And from Judah... You can keep tracking until the Messiah would come. So he's got to be of Abraham's seed, Jewish of descent, of the tribe of Judah. But then it also gives another qualifier that he he had to be of the family of David, who was also of the line of Judah. And that's why a lot of times there are words that ascribe to David a messiahship. Even though he wasn't the Messiah, there was so much about him that was archetypal of the Christ to come, the anointed one, the Messiah. Now we're in the New Testament. We have these qualifiers, right? Born of the the virgin woman, of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, the family of David. When we look at these genealogies, I'm going to read some of them for you. Um, Yeah, let's jump to it. Matthew chapter 1, starting in the first verse. In Matthew, it says this. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of who? David, there's the family of David qualifier that's made. The son of Abraham, there's the second qualifier. And then it goes on and it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah. There's the third qualifier, right? Okay, so now we have those qualifications met based on prophetic words about the line of the Messiah. They were fulfilled in this moment in Jesus' genealogy according to the book of Matthew. Now, if you jump to verse 16, the very end of this genealogy, it says who the father of Jesus was according to this genealogy. Verse 16 of Matthew chapter 1. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So there's the last qualifier, born of a woman. But I want you to notice who the father is. Joseph. But I really want you to notice notice who is the father of Joseph here. According to Matthew, it's Jacob. Jacob is the father of Joseph. So, pausing here before we go to Luke. Your legal heritage in this time was ascribed to you because of your biological father. The way that you were legally given your birth certificate had to do with your biological father's lineage. That, that was everything. Was Joseph Jesus' biological father? No, he wasn't. But Joseph adopted him, which was also very important and very necessary. Because if a father did adopt a child, then he was given legal heritage. But it still wasn't blood. And that was known. He, he was a part of the household, but it's, it's not blood. So according to Matthew, we have Jesus who's a part legally of the line of Abraham, 
Judah, and David by his adopted father. Okay, but what about his biology? Because isn't that important? Doesn't the scripture say that? He's going to come from this line? Well, we might want to say it's good enough. He was legally adopted into this family, and, and I think that would be perfectly appropriate, to be honest with you. But I love how God refuses to leave any stone unturned for doubters. And if he says something in a prophetic word, he fulfills it. Not just in a roundabout way of, well, I'll make him adopted. He could be of like the most random tribe, random people. He could even be a Gentile, but if he gets adopted in, good enough. God says, no. He's got the, the legal precedence to be of this tribe, but I'm going to bring it to biology. But we've got to deal with the whole immaculate conception, this supernatural way that, that Mary conceived Jesus without any man. She was a virgin when she became impregnated with Jesus, the Messiah. So in comes Luke's genealogy. Chapter 3, verse 23. I, I'm just jumping straight to this point. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. Do you remember what we just read in Matthew? Who was the father of Joseph, according to Matthew? Jacob. But according to Luke, right here, Joseph's father is Heli. So is there a discrepancy? Do Matthew and Luke need to get in a room and figure out, hey, let's figure out the real lineage, because you're saying one thing and another is another thing? No. Again, you, you might have an understanding of the, the societal status of women in this time. Was not high at all at all. Women were not usually, it was very, very uh, out of the norm for women to be included in official lists, censuses, and, and genealogies like this. So it's interesting when you read it and scholars all agree on the fact that here's what's happening. Luke in his writing understands social norms and he understands how provocative going against those social norms could be. And Luke already goes against social norms in this book. There are women mentioned in genealogies here. Mary herself is mentioned later on. But right here at the start of it, it's important to ascribe the, the legal ramifications of who Jesus is a part of. And that had to be the father. It could not be a woman, even if the woman was of the true biological descendant, a part of the genealogy. So right here, what we see Luke doing is really interesting and a little bit confusing. He's making sure not to confuse anybody who reads this genealogy who would be expecting it to be male, 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 male. And so he throws Joseph in there. But he says it was thought, ultimately, what we understand is that he puts Joseph in place of Mary here. This is actually Holly is the father of Mary, the mother of Jesus. But again, in order to make sure that individuals would not be so easily offended by the structure of this genealogy so that he can make sure we get to the root of the gospel so that they don't just open this letter, they open this scroll and start reading and, oh, let me read about Jesus. And, oh, Mary at the start of the genealogy? Oh, well, I'm not going to read this. It's like, all right, let, let's, let's just take care of this. We'll insert Joseph. But this is Mary's lineage. And you read the rest of it, and it comes, it comes down to Mary still. But it's fascinating here how Luke does that, because here's what we then understand, full picture about this. While Matthew gives us the legal understanding of Jesus' lineage as adopted by Joseph, the male, the dominant figure of the society who gave the rightful credentials to a person, a child, here, we see God saying, but guess what? He's still a part of the line of Abraham, of Judah, and of David. Not just legally, but biologically. I love how God does this. Jesus' miraculous inception still fulfilled the common human standards prophesied long ago. This is just so gracious of God, where he says, or, or we might say, like, God, I can't wrap my head around this. You prophesied it, but, you know, I, it just doesn't make sense to me. It's miraculous. 
It's not going to make sense to you, but God still throws us a bone, and here he throws us a bone and says, I'm still going to do it in a way that's going to absolutely make sure that you understand it and so that no stone is left unturned for you to start doubting. Jesus is the Messiah prophesied of and fulfilled in accordance with every norm that you could possibly think. And what's really interesting about this, uh, in accordance with ancient Jewish literature, it is undisputed that following the sack of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire around 70 AD and the burning of the temple, all of the genealogical records of the tribes of the people that were kept by rabbis and scribes were burned. And there were no genealogical records of individuals, which is really important for Jews who are waiting to understand where the Messiah is going to come from. So if a guy comes up one day and declares that he is the Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one, the Son of God, they were going to have some sort of standard to say, okay, well, let's go to the records of your family lineage. Are you of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah, and of the family of David? After 70 AD, there is not one Jewish man in history that would have been able to been affirmed by those records because they had been burned. Guess what? The Bible that we're reading right now were manuscripted and were copied and copied and copied and copied and dispersed throughout all of the known Roman Empire, the known world at that point. And we have the only living proof of a genealogical record going all the way back to Abraham and in Luke, going back to Adam, of a Jewish man. Isn't it ironic that it's Jesus' genealogical record? God's like, yeah, even even the paper trail that everybody else lost, not going to happen for my son, for Jesus. I'm going to make sure that there's no question. God is with you. Is this really the Messiah? God is with you. So I, I think that that's something that's geekishly worthy to, to have talked about, that maybe you tuck away in your back pocket one day. You might be sitting here saying, I cool, still not going to go and read a bunch of genealogies. That's okay. But maybe the next time you read this genealogy, you're reminded of the significance of how miraculous God works, even in our understanding. So let's keep going. Now I want to get to the heart of the text of of God being with us, Emmanuel. Matthew chapter 1 and the 18th verse, it says this. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, She was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Uh Uh-oh. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, which means he had every right to uphold the law, she would have been considered an adulterer, publicly shame her and stone her. That's fulfilling the law. And yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. Wow, mercy. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. Grace. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I I know you get this, but I can't ever, ever just brush over the significance of of what we just read, especially when, when you put yourselves in the shoes of Joseph and Mary, but Joseph right here. So excited, got all the wedding plan, I've got my job secured, you name it, whatever. We're going to have a good life. And then your bride-to-be comes and she tells you I'm pregnant. You know it wasn't you. (laughs) (sighs) 
And if that's not hard enough to hear, she goes, God did it. <laughs> what? What did you just say? <laughs> Don't blame God in this situation. No, I know how it sounds, but please, you got to hear me. Like, I, I, we're getting a good laugh out of this, and it's, uh, that's okay, but like, really, like, oh my gosh. I can't imagine hearing that back when Evie and I were engaged, and she would have come to me and said, I'm pregnant. It wasn't f- my baby. It's like, do with that. Joseph, like even what he decides to do is again, it's just so, so full of integrity, so merciful, so gracious, because he had every right to again publicly shame her, put her to death in accordance with the law. And he doesn't. He says, I'm gonna divorce her quietly because not only do I want to divorce her, but I want to do everything I can to make sure that she doesn't have it right. Man, that's a good man right there. And then you have a dream one night and, and an angel shows up. And it's like, Joseph, I know what you're thinking. I know how it sounds, but trust me. This is all a part of God's plan. Mary's not lying to you. And again, that would give me some comfort, but at the same time, I might start thinking, like, man, what did I eat last night? Like, that's sitting wrong in my stomach because now I don't know when I'm on the fence. What should I do? Like, this is just hard. Like, what do you do in this whole situation? Because no matter what, this is going to come out. And every, if Joseph figured this out, everybody else is going to figure it out. Because it's either Joseph lies and says, oh, yeah, I had premarital sex with her. And then they both could have been in a lot of trouble and both maybe stoned and put to death. You name it. Or he takes the even higher difficult road and goes, yeah, I know what it looks like. I can tell you what God said, but that's up to you to believe. And then assuming that people don't believe that, man, that's public disgrace. But Joseph is going to stand arm in arm with Mary and lead the way. Oh, my gosh. That is a man right there. Anyway, the point of this is, is the word, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call him. They, the people, the crowds, the masses who see him, they are going to be the ones that say, Emmanuel, God is with us. This comes from Isaiah chapter 7 and the 14th verse. It's a prophetic word that Joseph and Mary would have known. And the angel quotes to them. And so they're thinking, oh, that's right. I remember the prophet Isaiah. He said this. And here's what the prophet Isaiah said in his time, hundreds of years prior. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, it's important for us to at least broach the historical setting of Isaiah here. At this point, there's a division between the northern and the southern kingdom of the nation of Israel. Now you have Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They're split. They're at odds. And then you have the kingdom of Syria that's rising to power. And they are trying to get in cahoots with Israel to go against the Persian Empire. And they figured, hey, if we get Israel... And if we can get Judah to get on our side too, then the Persians aren't going to stand a chance. So Assyria and Israel are trying to convince Judah and King Ahaz to come and be a part of their warfare to overthrow the Persians. But King Ahaz is just on the fence. He's not saying no. He's not saying yes. He's like, I don't know. I think I need a little bit more time to weigh my options. And Ahaz like, time is up. I'm not playing that game with you. And now Judah is facing warfare from both Israel and the Assyrian Empire. And King Ahaz starts to sweat, and rightly so. In comes Isaiah the prophet. Now, mind you, Assyria is a pagan society. And Israel has long since abandoned soul worship of Yahweh, the one true God. And they have become syncretistic and very pagan. And Judah is having its ups and downs, and right now they're not too bad yet with their religious uh, focus on Yahweh. They will eventually give in and become very sinful and pagan, but at this point they're kind of on the fence with all of it. That that seems to be the the attitude, the disposition of, of the king who represents the nation on the fence. Should I go their way or should I stay God's way? What, what should I do? I'm on the fence right now. 
pagan kingdoms, the kingdom of Assyria, as I said, they're like, no, we're done with you. You're, you're too indecisive, so we're coming after you whether you like it or not. In comes Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, the prophet, and amidst all of what he says, he says what we just read to King Ahaz. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. I don't know what to do. I'm on the fence. Maybe, hey, God, are you still with us on this? The virgin will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you will call him God with us. Now, we don't know who the virgin is. Was this King Ahaz's wife? Some scholars believe that. Was this Isaiah's wife? Some scholars believe that. But in fact, there's actually a lot of proof that goes against it. We just don't know. It's very clear that this is referring to a literal person at a point in history at this time. But it's also very clear based on the full story of Scripture and Jesus that this is talking about a greater fulfillment, not just a present moment for the kingdom of Judah at this time of, of difficulty, but it's going to be a greater fulfillment of a time that's to come. But if we understand the implications of what it meant for King Ahaz, should he follow and obey this word of God to trust in him, I'm going to give you a sign that I'm with you. Here are some of the implications. I'm just going to give you two. In other words, here's what God is saying when he says, here's the prophetic word, Emmanuel, God with us, when that child is born through that virgin, whoever she is. Here's what the implications of that transpiring means. When God shows up, there are two things that you need to understand. Number one, whatever you're facing, you're not facing alone. Ahaz, kingdom of Judah, God is with you. And here's the sign. You're not alone. I know it's tough. I know you're uncertain. I know you're on the fence. Emmanuel. God is with you. But here's the other thing that, that I love, that unfortunately the kingdom of Judah didn't really follow through on. But here was an implication of Emmanuel. Should you fear the Lord and remain in him and obey his commands? Essentially, it's this. When, when God shows up, it's game over. For your enemies, for your oppressors, for your persecutors, for everybody that is against your God, whom you serve, who you are to represent. When God shows up, however and whenever, it's game over for the enemy. But the reverse is also true. If you don't wait on God, you don't obey him, and you don't trust him, it's game over. But not for your oppressors. For you. You've just taken out every means of victory that you have been given in Jesus when you take God out of the equation. So this is what's taking place in the book of Isaiah here in this chapter. But now we bring it to Jesus. And Emmanuel, God with us, the, the baby born to Mary and Joseph in the city of Bethlehem in a manger. Emmanuel, the first coming of Jesus. I want us to be reminded now of the implications for God by his coming in the flesh, his incarnation. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 in the sixth verse concerning Jesus and his incarnation, who being in very nature God, Jesus by nature is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. The literal interpretation of, of that Greek word means he emptied himself. He poured himself out. Like a pitcher that was full, he poured himself out. All of his divinity poured himself out by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So here's the point, point that I want you to understand concerning the reality of Jesus' incarnation, of Emmanuel. God's presence with us, it's humbling. 
I couldn't think of how to say this because it was so hard to say it. I wanted to say it was humiliating for him. But when we hear, we hear the word humiliating, we kind of think embarrassed. It's not what it necessarily means, but that's what we think. In a sense, it was incredibly humiliating for him, not because he was embarrassed or ashamed of it, but because Jesus, the Son of God, seated at the right hand of the throne of God in whom is all authority, all power, all dominion, through him, through whom all things have their existence, all things were created, the light that shines in the darkness poured himself out and took on our finitude, our brokenness, our struggle. He took that upon himself. The incarnation is humiliating, not, not embarrassing, but humiliating. It's the humblest thing that the creator could have done. Become the creation. Not for any selfish gain. He had nothing to gain from it. Then maybe his love for us and wanting to exercise his love for us. And it's so essential that we remember that during this season. Emmanuel, God with us, don't forget the lengths that Jesus went to for you and for me. I pray that it would humble us and not take Jesus for granted. Okay, so we're kind of getting this picture of God with us, but now I kind of want to hone in for the rest Concerning when. Kind of got this picture of, of the idea behind the significance of Emmanuel in a miraculous yet understandable prophetic way and what the implications from that perspective mean for us, that God is with us. We understand the ramifications for Jesus, the Son of God, in his divinity, what it meant for him to be Emmanuel in the flesh, God with us. But now I, I want us to really focus in this, this latter part about when. When has God been with us? During this time of season, we're focusing on the incarnation. So that was a specific point in time in history. In the flesh, he was with these individuals. He lived he breathed, he ate, he slept, he talked, he ministered in person, face to face, in this physical plane with individuals during a time for roughly 33 years of his life and 33 years of other people's lives. That's when he was here. But is that the only time that God has ever been with us? Let's see that. John chapter 1. The apostle says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So let me say it this way for you. Before we even got here, God was. Because it says, he was with God in the beginning, referring to time, the start of creation implying that God is outside of that. And the word was with God outside of that, before that, and then during it. So before you and I even were, Jesus, Emmanuel, already was. So when we come onto the scene by God's divine grace and love, he already is. I don't have to wait for Jesus to show up to the party. Already been there. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, your enemies, the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. For the Lord your God goes, what? With you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The idea of Emmanuel is here. On the brink of on the precipice of entering into the promise that God had dedicated and set aside for the nation of Israel, promising all the way back to Father Abraham that I am going to multiply your descendants. They're going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. 
and they are going to have it a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, in this moment in time, the Israelites, 40 years later, are on the brink of entering into the promised land. Well, technically before the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness is, is when this is referring to. And God says, you're here. I've brought you here. Do you remember how much I've done for you? Do you remember how much I've brought you through in spite of your denial, your lack of faith, your disobedience, your outright idolatry? I have still brought you here. I have still fulfilled my promise to you. You're right here. You see the promised land? The spies that brought back the report that the land is flowing with great produce. It's fertile as God promised. And man, this is a promise and a home and a land, the likes of which we could never have imagined possible. It's right there. I don't really want to talk about the negative, but we know the negative. But the rest of the spies were too afraid of the giants that were in the land. And God is saying right here, I know it seems scary, but I want you to know, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. I've always been with you. Pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. On the mountaintop. I have always been with you. So here's the point. When we're afraid to move forward, remember God is with us. Emmanuel. He's always been there. Isaiah 41 verse 10. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. The point is this. In the context of Isaiah, with the lands closing in and inevitable persecution coming, in our persecution, God is with us. Whatever you're going to go through or have gone through, where others have come against you because of your walk with the Lord, because of your faithfulness and your obedience to God, because you are remaining steadfast in the love of God, God is with you. When you're afraid to stand up for what you believe, God is with you. Psalm 34, verse 18. I love this verse. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And saves those who are crushed in spirit. In our brokenness, God is with us. Emmanuel. When I am in utter despair, when I have lost everything or something that is just so important to my life, and I am overwhelmed with worry, when as David the king said, I make myself a bed of tears every night. God, how long will my enemies prevail over me? When you are so grief-stricken, and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Emmanuel, God is with you. John 1.14 The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. I'll say it this way for you. When we think God doesn't know what we're going through, God is with us. The Word became flesh. We all know we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with every single one of our weaknesses, right? Jesus knows what we have been through. The Word became flesh. I think that's really important when you are in that despair and you are finding yourself in a place of why, God, why? If only he cared enough. Clearly he doesn't care because he just doesn't know. Word became flesh. Or grief your anger, your pain, your frustration, your loss, your 
injustice, the Word became flesh. John 8, 58. Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees who are arguing with him and contradicting him and denying him and calling him a blasphemer. And Jesus doubles down. And he says, guess what? And they say, how could you know what Father Abraham said? He was well before your time and our time. And Jesus looks at him and squares up and says, I tell you the truth. Before Abraham was, I am. Emmanuel, he's with them in that moment, but I've always been with you, and I've always been before you. Before you even showed up, I've been here waiting. So when we think we know better than God, as the Pharisees did, God with us. John 14, in the 15th verse, starting says this, If you love me, keep my commandment, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Really quickly, jumping to Matthew 28, 20, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So based on those two verses, the point is this, when we obey Jesus, God's with us. And he's always with us. But the question is, do you know if he's with you? Do you know if you obey his commands, if you follow him, if you remain in his love? And in chapter 14, he says, hey, if, if, if you think because I'm leaving your, your earthly existence bodily, I'm not leaving you. I've got the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with you. Guess what? He's functioning as a seal because I'm coming back in the mm, heavenly flesh. I'm going to resurrect all of you, and we're going to be reunited once again. You're never alone. Jesus says, I'm never leaving you as orphans, so obey him. Revelation 21, second coming, when Jesus comes back. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Not in the clouds, not far off, not in some weird plane of, of supernatural existence. Could be, but the defining characteristic of God's presence and his dwelling place it's his throne room it's his kingdom he will dwell with them they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When Jesus returns, we will shout, God with us. Emmanuel. Matthew 18, verse 20, I thought this was really important. This is the last scripture I have for you. When is God with us? 
for where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I with them. So I got something to tell you. God is with you right now. God is in this place right now. He deserves glory and praise. He deserves all that we can muster up to give him and then some more because God is with us in this gathering, in this place, in this body, in this community. When you come here, when you look around this room and you see fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you get to say, God is here. Emmanuel. It's a special time during this Christmas season to say it, but you get to say it all the time. When you walk through these doors, Emmanuel, God with us, because he is here. So here, here's the last point to, to bring all of this full circle. When has God been with us? When is an appropriate time to say Emmanuel? There's never been a moment that God wasn't with us. We honor the incarnation because of the reasons that we've talked about and the extreme humiliation that Jesus took upon himself in pouring himself out and coming into the world and facing hardship, culminating on the cross, becoming sin itself for us. That is utter humiliation. And we honor him for being born to a poor family in a rough town and did not have a glamorous upbringing and worked as a carpenter, a man who worked with his hands, not aristocratic, not a man of much renown, a humble man. Emmanuel, this season, incarnation, God with us. But, Emmanuel always. Before I was, Emmanuel. When I came into existence, Emmanuel. When I faced countless hardships, and I feel all alone, and everybody's abandoned me, Emmanuel. When I am persecuted, Emmanuel. When I suffer, Emmanuel, when I'm on the brink of entering into all the promises that God has made to my forefathers past and I'm about to receive it, but I'm afraid to step out in faith and I don't know if I have the power to continue to walk in this faith, Emmanuel. wonder about the legitimacy of Jesus' incarnation and the fulfillment of the prophetic word, Emmanuel. My hope for his inevitable return, his imminent return. Once more, in the flesh. There's never a time. Emmanuel, God. Stand with me on your feet this morning. Love Jesus. And I want you to know that I love Jesus. God, I pray would never forget that you are. Those who are struggling to keep their legs beneath them right now for whatever reason, for whatever hardship, pray that right now you would speak to them. Let the Lord speak to you.
Father, I pray that we would be reminded of that. Drawing near. It's coming and will be fulfilled. Mind, physical, Christmas season, I pray we would be reminded that what Jesus promised to do, He's already done. He came once. So, Father, I pray for a blessing now to be upon my brothers and sisters in this place. Fullness of Christ. Walk arm in arm with you, following your leading. Ask all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. All of God's people said,